as local people growing up here in Hawaii, we've been conditioned to believe that it's it's a negative thing because of, you know, the different ethnicities who've come here or are still here. My job mainly is not just to tell ghost stories and to scare people, but also to clear up that misunderstanding of what this is all about, which is really, really communication. He says his spooky stories aren't made up. They're based on history, experience, and a knowledge and understanding of the unseen. Meet this Hawaiian ghost storyteller next on Long Story Short. One-on-one engaging conversations with some of Hawaii's most intriguing people. Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox. Aloha mai kako. I'm Leslie Wilcox. Robert Lopaka Kapanui is many things, including a writer, an actor, a cultural practitioner, and even a former professional wrestler. Yet he's best known as a storyteller who's made a business of taking people on tours of what he calls Oahu's most haunted places. Like many who grew up in Hawaii, Lopaka first started hearing ghost stories at a young age and says he even had a few of his own supernatural experiences. He also experienced a scary start to his own life. But the reason for that was not supernatural. At three months of age, uh, I was severely malnutrition and they said I was about the size of a rolled up newspaper. My mother was having an argument with my grandfather and refused to go home so instead she chose that we should live in a station wagon behind a bar in Kalihi but my health wasn't good and my mother didn't have the means financially to take care of me in that capacity and so as hard as it was for her and she told me this later on she she had to do something you know to, to help me and to make sure I had a better life and her only option was to give me up for adoption. And at an appliance store where my mom worked as a secretary, she met a nice man who ended up becoming my adopted father. My adopted parents had a little boy that they'd lost uh, a short time before my adoption, and so this sort of all worked out for them. The only condition after the adoption was that my, my biological mother couldn't see me. And that's the agreement she had to make, that she wouldn't involve herself in my life and not try to reconnect at any point. And so she, she had to agree to that. When, so, when did you see her again? I saw her when I was 15 years old, and she called my adopted father and told him that my biological grandfather had passed away, and his last request was to have me at his services. And the funny thing is my, uh, my biological mother told me later on that she actually had a dream of what I would look like, what I would be wearing at the services for my grandfather. And so when I walked into uh, Hawaii Memorial, there I was in the beige shirt that she imagined me in, the white jeans. Uh, the slippers, and my my hairstyle, of all things. I guess at the three months, you wouldn't have any um, remembrance that you were, that you had a really tough time as a baby, that you you were obviously really hungry, and you're weak. How do you look back on, on your start in life? I mean, kind of a tough go. You know, I, the funny thing is I don't really recall any of that. I do know that I was uh, sick for most of my early life, to the point that about six or seven years old, I had to go to children's hospital. And I was there for a couple of months to have my kidneys cleaned out. You know, I'm a Buddhist, so we believe in karma. And so I personally think that, you know, somewhere in my past life, I I was someone who caused somebody a great deal of suffering. And so maybe it was my karma early in my life to go through this, to eradicate all of that early so I wouldn't have to go through that later in life. Tell me about your... 
adoptive family. You're in a new family. What are they like? You know, it's a crazy life. I am adopted by a traditional Portuguese family. I'm a Hawaiian kid, and I grew up thinking I'm Japanese. <laughs> Why? Because you lived in Kaimuki? <laughs> uh, we no, actually, you were in Waianae's side, weren't you? We are in Waianae, and we spent every summer in Wainaku on the Big Island. And um, it was toward the end of the plantation era. So a bunch of us, even though we were different ethnicities, everything we did was intrinsically Japanese. Uh, Okazuya, the weekend, watch Toyomo no Kinsan, <laughs> Kikaira, everybody does karate. And so we don't think about it as being something Japanese. It's just something we all did. Well, you were living with a Portuguese family. So did they have a sense of the, the ghosts? You know, the funny thing is um, they would stay up all night with all the other neighbors and talk about ghosts and things that happened when they were growing up. And so none of us were ever able to, to listen to that. We had to go to sleep. And, you know, I used to get spankings for this all the time. I would sneak underneath the kitchen table because they had the big crochet cover and I would hide <laughs> and listen to them tell ghost stories. And so they were very, very aware of what was going on. And for the larger part of my, my younger years, and, you know, in retrospect, I understand now why. But my adopted father would always remind me that I was adopted and I wasn't his son, you know. And we'd go out and meet people and he would introduce my brothers and say, oh, and this is, you know, my adopted son, not my real son. Uh, father and son baseball game, my two older adopted brothers don't want to play. I'm like, Dad, we can go do it. No, I cannot. You're my adopted son. You know, the article says father and son, not you. And so one of the things that happened is while I was in the hospital, uh, my adopted father was at work. And he went to use the bathroom, and he said, someone's pounding on the door, pounding on the door, turning the doorknob. And he says, outside, after he yells to cut it out, he hears a voice saying, Dad, Dad, open the door and let me in. It's me, Dad, let me in. Claims it's my voice, but knows it can't be me because I'm in the hospital. And he says, whoever that is, just go away. Go away, leave me alone. And then he hears the voice say, I know why you don't want to open the door, Dad, because I'm not your real son. And it left. Come to find out, they had to call a Portuguese fetzera to come look at the house. And she told my adopted parents, she says, there's three Hawaiian people buried underneath this house. And pointed to my adopted father and said, they're upset at you because every day they hear you telling the boy he's not your real son. So they want to take him. They're tired of hearing that. And so her advice was, change your attitude now. He's either your son or not your son. But you make up your mind. Oh, you must have been thrilled to hear that. Oh, years later on, you know, when I was a teenager and just had enough and wanted to leave, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, from what? And I, I believe you lived in. A, you moved around quite a bit as a as a kid. We did. From Waianae, we moved to uh, Waimalu, and that was interesting because we we lived in a haunted house, and it was owned by a local Japanese family, so it had the the shoji doors and everything, and nothing quite happened. That was scary until one night we're sitting in the living room and the door to the hallway is here and we had this stand-up oil lamp. The only way you could make it work was through oil. And sometimes, sometimes the oil is dripping down the thing and we see this little Japanese boy come out the door from the hallway and he walks up to the oil lamp and he starts to lick it. He's licking the oil and he looks at us and he turns around and he leaves. Everybody's freaked out. Uh, we call a priest who won't come. We call a, a kahuna who won't come. And so we call an odaisan, uh, a Japanese you know, person with, with gifts, who comes to the house and we explain what happened. And that person says, oh, yes, in Japan they have a ghost like that. It's usually a little boy and the ghost likes to lick the oil off the lamp. Can you get rid of it? 
oh, yes, I will ask it to go somewhere else. And he said, same time, please throw away the lamp. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So was that your first experience with the, with the idea of ghosts? That was the first uh, visual experience. Up until then, I, I always heard voices uh, would have aromas around me, but never quite had the visual experience up until that time. And soon after that, I became sick, about six or seven years old, had to go to the hospital, like I said. And while I was in the hospital, and this is a short story, my adopted grandmother, my adopted father's mom, would come every day and sit with me. And I had a roommate next door who I would play with. His name was Scotty. And after I get out of the hospital, I found out that my adopted grandmother, Grandma Lucy, had passed away while I was in the hospital. But they didn't want to tell me because we're really close. And I described what she was wearing. And my adopted father went into the living room, brought out the picture, the black and white portrait. And it's the exact mu'umu'u that I saw her wearing. And it turns out that was the portrait that was displayed at her services. My roommate, Scotty, was a very famous kid. Back then, he was in a, a commercial where he was singing a, a Hawaiian song. And he was very upbeat. I had no idea he was sick until one evening the curtains closed and I can see the doctors hear the family. They're working on him. There's crying. They leave. You can see his silhouette sit up in the bed and I see him jump off his bed. His little shadow comes up to the partition and he says, friend, friend, let's play. Come on, friend, let's go play. And I start to get off the bed and then I hear my uh, adoptive grandmother say behind me, don't get off that bed. I said, why? It's my friend Scotty. He wants to play. You get off that bed. Your feet touch the floor. You go with him. You never come back. And that's at the old children's hospital. Lopaka Kapanui pursued several interests after finishing school, including Hawaiian cultural practices, professional wrestling, and working in Waikiki. But it wasn't until someone told him about a chicken skin ghost tour led by a University of Hawaii professor named Glenn Grant that he found that everything he'd learned and experienced up to that point in his life was coming together. The job you have now, the, you know, the business you have, this is all, it's, it's based on things that have happened to you all along. All of my life, and then I run into uh, this guy in 1994 who's hosting this downtown ghost tour. And I'm working at the, uh, the Halikulani at that time, and a gentleman by the name of Takemi Oshiro, who's in charge of the front desk, is raving about this tour. And so I go the following Wednesday, and places, it's packed, it's a crowd of people. And when I hear this gentleman talk, and he starts to go on about these stories, I'm, I'm astounded, I'm flabbergasted, because the majority of what he's talking about are things that I already knew growing up and learned from my mom. It, but it, the difference was there was documentation and there was history, and there were things to back up these claims so that no one could say, well, that's just made-up Hawaiian legends, you know, old wives' tales. What kind of documentation? He would show photographs of places that were haunted and then produce the map as to what the place was before. Uh, for instance, like uh, the area around Aloha Tower, there's some sacrificial temples. Uh, there were areas where the spirits would gather late at night, you know, to, to basically frolic. And there was a map he showed... Uh, regarding that, and then it happens to be um, where the first Hawaiian Bank building is now. <laughs> and as the tour went on, more people started to come. And so sometimes that tour would end like 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, the following Wednesday was when I was at Hula with uh, Kione, because he's also my Kumu Hula, and he told us, oh, listen, by the way, um, this friend of mine uh, is doing this ghost tour out to Hawaii, and I, so I'm going to do the, you know, the Hawaiian part, and he's going to do the other part. And he says, so you guys are going to dance at the, at the heiau at Pokaibe. 
And so he said, oh, I don't know if you heard of this guy, uh, my friend, his, his name is Glenn Grant. And so we would do that tour all the time. Uh, my cousin and I mainly danced. And one weekend, uh, Keone couldn't make it, and Glenn was in a panic. I don't know you're part of the tour. What am I supposed to do? And Keone says, oh, you know, Lopaka knows it. You know, he can do it. And so that's basically how it started. After that, he called and asked, you know, if you more stuff to do, would you mind? And so it eventually evolved into uh, being mentored to basically take over the tour. Because, you know, the thing about being uh, trained by Glenn Grant and learning from him is documentation, research. And he actually said to me, I can get away with mispronouncing Hawaiian names and other things, he says, because I'm Hawaii. So people expect, expect me to make mistake, mistakes. But he says, you as a Hawaiian, one mistake you make, your own people will crucify you. So he said, it's harder for you than it is for me. So you have to get your facts straight. Well, he, but he's a pro, he was a professor, so he would have to get his science right. Absolutely. So I remember I made a mistake about a, a legend about Pele and a, a Cocoa Head Crater. And in front of a room full of people, he got up and told me I was wrong. And he said, what are you doing? You didn't research that. He goes, don't do that again. <laughs> Glenn Grant described himself as a, a Jewish guy from... From Hollywood. Oh, Hollywood, that's right, Hollywood. Yeah. You know, I, I can see your cultural interest, but I, what was his? Glenn's story was when he moved here, he was living in a dilapidated old beat-up house on university between these high-rise condominiums. And again, the short story is immediately after they moved in, things started to happen. Uh, roommate is taking a shower, and he sees his girlfriend coming toward the shower curtain. He opens it. He's got soap in his eyes. And someone slaps him in the face, and he turns around. No one's in the shower. No one's in the bathroom because it's locked. Um, things being thrown around the kitchen. And so they finally call the landlord over and explain to her what's going on. And she says to them, oh, I'm so sorry. I forget to tell you. Before you come to this place, uh, the lady live here, her husband fool around. She hang herself in the kitchen. She hates men. So sorry. <laughs> that would have been nice to know earlier. <laughs> yes. So Glenn is telling me this in the old store, and he says uh, shortly after that, all those guys that were his roommates, one by one, they were all killed in car accidents. And he had a 55 Chevy Air station wagon, and when it got creamed by this truck like 2 o'clock in the morning, he just walked away with a scar. So he's the only one who survived, and that piqued his interest in uh, ghosts in Hawaii. Primarily, it started to be uh, Japanese ghosts, and then it uh, became Hawaiian, Portuguese, and all the other cultures. And so he even admitted himself that he was a big chicken. First one probably to run if anything happened. Before this, this career, there was another one. <laughs> Could you tell us about that? Oh, my God. I can't believe. Okay. Um, I had a I had a career as a as a professional wrestler for 17 years. When I was still working for Glenn Grant, I was still doing this. It was toward the end of my career. It wasn't becoming fun anymore. And um, his secretary, when I would tell her, "Listen, I got something this Saturday, like a match or something. Don't book a tour." She'd book it anyway. And we always figured it out. But one weekend, I could not get out of the tour, and I could not get out of uh, wrestling the match. So I had to figure something out, so I got on the bus, and before I got on the bus, I called the booker at the venue. I said, listen, man, I'm stuck. What are we going to do? The booker says, I don't know. I said, okay, let's do this. 
I'm going to bring my tour to the venue, and I'm going to do the match. And uh, instead of the main event, make the match first. And he says, okay. And I said, but I'm going to bring my tour with me. He's like, oh, man, I don't know about that. It worked out. So I got on the bus, and I said, listen, everybody, we're going to this venue. It's a professional wrestling match. Uh, when the bus pulls up, you guys get out, go into the front door, sit in the front row. I'm going to uh, run into the ring, beat the guy up. We're going to win the match, and then you go back to the bus, and we'll do the tour. And that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> I run in, beat the guy up, one, two, three, get the belt, run out, people go on the bus. Finally get out to the bus and get in, and I'm looking at everybody, and I get on the mic. I said, so, is anybody going to give me a hard time? No, no. <laughs> then, you know, big round of applause. <laughs> Lupaka Kapanui says his knowledge of Hawaiian history and culture and the supernatural have come about through research and his own experiences, as well as the encounters of others who've shared their stories with him. Do you believe in ghosts? Do you believe that they're actually ghosts, and, and what are they? A ghost is uh, something that's residual. It's a recording it just plays itself back uh, during certain times. And where did it come from? It died and then part of it is left? Well, <laughs> I mean... I, I have to honestly say it's like working for the state. You know? <laughs> the joke is you work for the state, you die, no heaven or hell, you go back to work. So a ghost is someone who's been in a place for a certain amount of time and some part of them is still there. They've made some sort of impression of themselves, like a psychic thumbprint. Deliberately or this just happens? Yeah, it just happens, you know, not intentional. And so when you see a ghost, you're seeing a recording, you know, an imprint of an event that, that's happened in the past. Uh, when you see an apparition, an apparition is, is aware, it's cognizant. It, it knows it's not here anymore, it's, it knows it's not human, but it's here for, for some reason, some unfinished business. And so if it senses that you're psychic, it wants to communicate with you. And uh, what's the downside of communication? The downside of communication is sometimes it leaves marks, fingertip bruise marks, scratches. Uh, sometimes, no matter where you go, you will hear a voice calling your name, you know, and it, it won't stop until you answer the phone call, so to say. It's trying to get through all this stuff to get the message across. And so that's where a misunderstanding takes place, and people think it's evil, it's demonic, but really it's just communication. So there, is, there are no ghosts that will harass you and drive you to your death? Not that I know of. I have never heard of anyone yet losing their life because of an encounter with something otherworldly. According to Hollywood and reality shows, it might happen. But in real life, not so much. And there are ghosts of every ethnicity and background around the world? Oh, absolutely. Especially here in Hawaii. I mean, you may not believe it, but the most famous ghost story here in Hawaii is a Japanese ghost story. Which one is that? The Woman with No Face. <laughs> you tell us the story. So the, the short story is 19, uh, 1956, the Waialai Drive-In. Yes, that's... <laughs> okay, that's Obaki in the restroom, In right? the women's restroom. Uh, the double feature was Love Slaves of the Amazon and Monolith Monsters, uh, according to the article from Bob Krause, who's, who's a great guy. And it's the intermission. The woman goes to the bathroom doing her business. She says she sees a woman in a white summer yukata come up to the sink, wash her hands... And the woman says when she looks in the mirror, the lady takes her hair back like this, has no face. That is really spooky. Yes. And so to fast forward that event, uh, today that, that ghost is still haunting that area. There is no drive-in anymore. There's no drive-in, but there's a Times supermarket. 
And she's been seen in the, uh, the walk-in freezer and the employee bathroom. And there's also a shopping mall. After the, uh, the drive-in was uh, demolished in 94, she had nowhere to go. So she went to Times Supermarket and then the mall. And so she's been seen in the women's downstairs bathroom at the mall, uh, at a department store, and uh, the 8 Plex Theater. So she's still around. Apparently she's haunting theater number six. Why is it not okay to take pork over the pulley, according to legend? According to the legend, and this is the, uh, the short version, Pele and Kamapua'a were once uh, boyfriend and girlfriend. Okay, she's the fire goddess, he's the pig god. Right, right. And so even though they were in this relationship, uh, Kamapua'a has not changed his ways. And so he's out cavorting and Pele finds out and one afternoon he's coming home and says, what a wondrous sight, a tidal wave coming from the mountain. And he realizes it's a tidal wave of lava. He says, oh my God, she found out. And so he's running for his life, uh, Papaiko, Puna, Panaeva. And a hill outside of Hilo called Kauku is where the pig god lies flat and begins to pray. And the, the Hilo rain, the Uakanilehua, begins to fall. Uh, they, tr- they say roots from great trees rise up and hold back the, the lava, the lake of fire. And finally, when it's all cooled off, they say Pele appears and says, well, I can't kill you, so what are we going to do? He says, let's make this agreement that the, the, from this moment forward, uh, the Ko'olau side of every island, the windward side is mine, lush, green, filled with rain. And the Kona side of every island will be yours, hot, arid, dry. And none shall cross into the other's territory. And Pele says, Aoya, agreed. And so if there's any truth to this, it is really that you can't bring pork from the windward to the leeward side. But to be more specific, you can bring pork through the H3, the Wilson, the Pali Tunnels, but you can't bring it up that road at the Pali Lookout that's coming from the windward, because technically there's a road at the Pali Lookout that crosses that meridian that makes it leeward. I will send you a picture of someone who bought pork over the Pali coming from that side. It's someone who unknowingly thought he was doing a good thing by making an offering, but come to find out his offering was pork to the pig god which I later on told him, you realize, you realize you're making an offering of pork to the pig god. Do you understand that? And he says, why? Does it make a difference? I said, it's like offering a mother her own children. Under his hand, in this picture, you see a green swirling mist like this. Um, I actually had to go back four o'clock in the morning to do prayers of apology for that guy and supplication. Because on, on these adventures, I... I'm pretty familiar with ghosts and spirits and other things, but a lot of times it's foolish people that worry me. Are there certain pathways or energetic points that are, are known for ghosts? Yeah, they're called Aukueva. And the Aukueva is an opening between worlds where after you die, your spirit is escorted to the next world by your, your family, Aumakua. What about the, you know, the jumping off places? There are several on the islands. One of them is at Mokulaia by Kaena Point. Um, and then Maui has, has one known, known as the jumping off place for souls. Yes, uh, that's Kahikili's Leap. Uh, the other one we're talking about is Lelena Kauhane at, um, right on the cusp of Mokulaia and Kaena. Another one is Kalailua, Barbara's Point. And yet another one is now the cafeteria of Moanalua High School. And so that's another leaping place. And Moanalua High School used to be on my list of the three most haunted public schools on the island, but it's fallen off uh, since King Intermediate has taken its place. Because of what happened there before? Mainly because of the history. For instance, uh, Aiea High School 
the famous battle of Kaeokulani and Kalanikupule months before uh, the Battle of Nu'uanu. It takes place uh, from Aia High School all the way to uh, where Palimomi is. The unfortunate thing about that battle is uh, when Kalanikupule wins the battle over his uncle, every warrior that's been slain on the uncle's side, they've all been left out in the open. They have not been given the proper burial of respect. And that's a, a sign of disrespect. And so the large majority of that is the grounds of Aia High School, um, a part of that freeway that always has accidents, Ka'uhumanu, Ka'unohi Overpass, which happen to be night marcher trails. And so a trauma that is caused by, by an incident makes a psychic thumbprint on the environment. And depending upon the kind of people who are around the area, uh, determines as to if that trauma becomes residual or cognizant. And so what we're talking about when we say residual is a, a, an event just repeating itself. It does, it's not aware that you're there. Uh, cognizant means the event is aware that it's passed away. It's aware that it's not human. And when it becomes aware of us, it wants to interact and communicate. And that's when hauntings happen. So many people think this is all balderdash. Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, ridiculous. How do you explain to them that... How, why you know this is true. What I always tell them is, give me a chance to change your mind. Spend some time with me, come to the event, come listen, um, and give me a chance, give me that opportunity to, to change your mind. You don't have to like it. Uh, I would encourage that you at least respect it. But that's the first thing I say, let me change your mind. And they usually end up becoming believers at the end. We close this program with a spooky story that Lopaka Kapanui told a group at a Japanese cemetery in Mo'ili'ili, O'ahu, during a full moon on the night of a Friday the 13th. Mahalo to Robert Lopaka Kapanui of Kaimuki, O'ahu, for sharing your life stories and chicken skin accounts with us. And thank you for joining us. Aloha Nui. Your wife is a teacher. And one night she's home, sitting at the kitchen table, correcting papers. She's sort of watching TV. And all of a sudden, the TV screen goes, all that white poltergeist filter. And the wind suddenly dies, and the sound is gone. And from behind the house, somewhere near the mango tree, she hears the tinkling sound of the chimes. Ding. 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 And it's coming around the house, outside her bedroom, the bathroom, coming around to the living room. Ding. Ding. And now coming up the steps. Ding. Ding. And she tries to get up to see what the source of the sound is, but she cannot move. Something is holding her down at the kitchen table. Not even her head can move, only her eyes can look toward the front door. Holding chimes in its hand. There's a skeletal fist with flesh falling off of it. And what walks into her living room is a skeletal remains of a woman in a faded, bloody white kimono. Clumps of hair falling off her skull teeth bare. And she stands just inside the front door in the living room, and she says, Leave my house now. 
for audio and written transcripts of all episodes of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, visit pbshawaii.org. To download free podcasts of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, go to the Apple iTunes Store or visit pbshawaii.org. 